Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. It's Thursday, October 13th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. This year's rankings of universities around the world has fewer U.S. universities ranking in the top 100, and China stepping up with more high-impact research. A higher percentage of China's research is being cited globally, and is focused on materials science, chemistry, and engineering, while the U.S. is focusing on clinical medicine and physics. Doug Belkin, higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for how China's universities are on the rise. Next, Mark Zuckerberg has unveiled Meta's new virtual reality headset called the Quest Pro, saying it's the next major step for VR and a milestone to building the metaverse. The only problem is that it's going to cost you. The headset is about $1,500, which puts it out of reach for casual users and most gamers. Shireen Ghaffari, tech reporter at Recode by Vox, joins us for what to know. Finally, robotic engineers have been taking cues from the insect world to create machines that could aid in search and rescue ops, sniff out gas leaks, and more. As sensors and battery tech keeps getting better and smaller, they're outfitting Madagascar hissing cockroaches with 3D printed sensors or creating fully robotic machines inspired by how insects move and fly. Pranshu Verma, tech reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for the cyborg cockroaches. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The United States continues to be home to the largest number of really great research universities, but the actual research that's being produced uh, is diminishing by comparison, and that's being reflected in these rankings as well. Joining us now is Doug Belkin, higher education reporter at the Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Doug. Thanks very much for the invitation. Well, uh, we got a report from uh, the World University Rankings, ranking all the universities uh, across the world. Right now, what we're seeing is that China's universities are rising in the world rankings, and the American schools are starting to drop down a little bit. Now, it's not all bad news. The top 10 universities when it comes to uh, research and all that still goes to the U.S. and the U.K., but China, when we go to the top 100 universities, China is increasingly gaining some clout there, and uh, also in the type of research and the quantity of re- quality of research that they're doing. So, Doug, tell us a little bit more about it. Yeah, so what's happened is, uh, what you laid out pretty well, this World University Rankings looks, uh, it's very, it weights its ranking methodology toward research. So if a paper is written and it's cited frequently, then that means that people are paying attention to it and it's sort of high quality. In 2019, 
the research created by Chinese institutions surpassed in quality those created by American institutions, which was kind of stunning considering the fact that uh, really up until the probably mid-90s, they weren't doing much. So the United States continues to be home to the largest number of really great research universities, but the actual research that's being produced uh, is diminishing by comparison, and that's being reflected in these rankings as well. So the top 10, as I mentioned, uh, belong to the U.S. and the U.K. We're looking at Oxford University, Harvard, University of Cambridge, Stanford, MIT, Caltech, you know, among others. And what we're seeing, too, is, as you mentioned, you know, the type of research is different, too, coming from these various universities. So when we're looking at China and their research, they're concentrating on material science, chemistry, engineering, and mathematics. And in the U.S., we're starting to see more stuff going into clinical medicine, life sciences, physics. It kind of reflects the economies and the trajectories of the economies that the different either country is, is headed toward. You know, China continues to be a manufacturing powerhouse, and the United States is largely post-industrial, and so that's reflected in where our research concentration is. You can see uh, you can see a bifurcation happening there. What are we looking at with the full spectrum of universities? Because you made mention in the article, you know, that maybe their top 50 universities are really good there in China. Then there's this pretty steep fall off. So across the board, at least for China, you know, they're not producing the quality of research all over the place. Their top tier, their top dozen universities are pretty much as good as anything we've got in the United States. And that's, you know, a lot of that's being fueled by the fact that, A, they've put a tremendous amount of money into their universities, into these top tier universities. And secondly, the United States has helped to train some of their best and brightest. And then uh, a lot of them have returned home and they're creating their own labs there. And that's paying dividends. That said, the United States, the bench is much deeper here. We have probably uh, about 300 universities that are that are creating really significant global research. And that's just beyond what China is capable of at this point. What are we doing here in the U.S., at least as far as the uh, the Biden administration goes, when they put money into federal research and development? I know the Chips and Science Act was passed recently. I know there's some money in there for this type of stuff. But how do we compare when it comes to China? The R&D budgets are fairly equal right now. China's has grown significantly. And, you know, the economies of the two nations are pretty close as well, the GDP. So the difference is that, that the percentage of the GDP that China is investing into R&D, research and development, is growing very quickly, and it's really stagnated and declined in the United States. So, you know, when Biden signed the CHIPS Act, you know, two things happened. First of all, it's, it's uh, the idea is to reshore some manufacturing here, especially for the microchip industry, which is critical for, for the military and everything else. But there's also money that's pointing toward R&D. So there's some sort of hopeful signals that the federal government is uh, refocusing on this sort of thing. What's been the reaction to this uh, report, to this news from uh, here in America, obviously from uh, educators, university heads? uh, How are they feeling about all this? You know, there's a lot of complaints that universities are focusing on the wrong things. Uh, There's a lot of distractions. So one of the things that's happening in China is they don't have the same levels of freedom and just open discourse. And that's maybe it's helping them focus and concentrate uh, a little bit better. The United States is really debating itself. It's the mark of an open and a free society, but it takes a lot of energy to do that. So there's a lot of consternation around how energy on American college campuses is being spent. I think the debate is there. And then, you know, the commitment, the money that's invested in this pure research, sometimes it doesn't pay off for a generation or two. So this is 
this is a long-term step. The stock market operates on quarterly earnings. Research and development, the life cycle can be, you know, 20 or 30 years. So you have to take a long view on this stuff. And uh, I think this story and this conversation is beginning to get a little louder in this country right now. Doug Belkin, higher education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. It lets you meet in mixed reality and share the same space. You can use a whiteboard, bring in 3D objects. Everyone is present and has the same tools, whether they're in full VR or in mixed reality. We think that this will help hybrid teams collaborate. Joining us now is Shireen Ghaffari, tech reporter at Recode by Vox. Thanks for joining us, Shireen. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about uh, what's next for the metaverse. Uh, At an event for Meta, the parent company of Facebook, uh, Mark Zuckerberg unveiled the latest piece, which they're calling the Quest Pro. So this is the headset that you're going to be using for the current iteration of the metaverse. The thing with it is, though, is it's pretty expensive. It's $1,500. But this thing is meant to have the functionality of a computer. Um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg said this is the next major step for VR. So, uh, Shireen, tell us a little bit more about this Quest Pro, this new headset. Sure. So it's a high-end device that's meant to have so much functionality that it rivals an actual computer PC. It is mixed reality, which means that you can sort of overlay images that are virtual onto your real world around you. And the company is really pitching this as a work device because many you know, everyday consumers can't afford that $1,500 price tag. So they're pitching this to people like architects and shoe designers and folks who may use sort of high-end 3D modeling in their job and find this useful. You know, we've been talking about the metaverse for a long time and everything. And really for something like this to take off is you're going to need regular people to be able to use this in a lot of ways you know that's why people look to gamers you know they you know the the gaming culture if they start picking it up if they adopt this then you're kind of in and looking through headlines just about this uh, announcement of this new headset right away you saw the headlines uh, that this is not for gamers this is more expensive than buying a PS5 and Xbox and a Quest 2 combined yeah. you know right away you're kind of the price point is just so high you know in the past Meta has had, their past releases have been much more affordable. The prior one called the Quest 2 goes for around $399. When it came out, I believe it was $299. So you could see that as being something that maybe you get your friend or your son or daughter for Christmas. And maybe it's a, it's a sort of mid to high end gaming device for an everyday person. But the $1,499 price tag is a huge step up. And I yeah. think that's why we see the company trying to now pitch this to actual professionals, but I think it's a lot more unseen. Gamers are really eager about this new technology, but will this pick up in the workplace is yet to be determined. Yeah, I have a couple friends that have the Quest 2, and you know, you play Beat Saber on it, you play a couple other fun little games. Um, you know, it seems like that's kind of the extent. You know, I haven't uh, extensively, extensively played with one, but just a couple of those few fun games. But as you mentioned, right, they're pitching this new one, at least, at least for the time being, for professionals. And they've partnered with Adobe to put 3D design software on it, um, Microsoft to put their suite of uh, Office products on there. So, I mean, really, they're trying to pitch it that way and to see if it catches on, at least in the beginning. 
you know, people at work, it's a totally different, I think, type of person that you're targeting with this. And I think you see sort of organic growth in the gaming field. You see people just naturally get excited about video games and VR, AR, and the people who like it really love it. I think it's a lot more unclear how this adoption is going to work in the office, especially in like a virtual office. Is this something that offices are going to mandate that their employees use? Will they really be able to adopt it? Because it is quite complex and quite new. And it's, uh, it's, there's going to be a steeper curve to learning how to use this in your day-to-day work than something like Zoom, for sure. Uh, still, Mark Zuckerberg is really betting on the future for this stuff. You know, he thinks that the metaverse, these devices are going to, uh, you know, be just like using cell phones, using laptops and everything. Uh, you did mention in the article there's, uh, you know, a few other barriers. I, I guess um, the battery life might not be too good on this product just yet. That's right. It gets one to two hours of battery life when and then after that you have to recharge it. So it's not something that you can really take out, you know, walk around and take with you while you're traveling or something like that and and be on the go and have a full charge. So that kind of means that it's something that more or less you have to use when you're in a home office or office kind of environment and you have an outlet nearby. Where are we seeing the status of the metaverse so far right now? Because, right, we're getting this headset. This is uh, presumably what you'll be using to operate in the world and all that. But uh, you may mention in the article, too, right? Some of the avatars, at least this is on uh, Meta's side of things. Uh, some of the avatars don't even have legs yet. Uh, you know, they look like little torsos kind of jumping around and all that. You know, so, you know, how, how is the, the progress going on the metaverse? I think it's not going as quickly as people are expecting. I've seen a lot of responses to, to pictures of what the metaverse looks like now who, who are just saying, like, this doesn't look much better than the Sims that I played when I was a kid in the 90s. Or, you know, and the truth is, it's harder than it seems. It's one thing to be playing a computer game that's 2D and you can soup up the graphics. But when you're in 3D and you're in this virtual world, that takes a lot more computing power to be able to actually simulate that kind of environment. And, you know, 3D doesn't always translate to 2D. I think when you're actually strapped on, you have your headset, you're in there, it does feel more lifelike than the pictures make it seem. But that being said, I think the expectation is really high for what this is going to look like. And Mark Zuckerberg himself has been sort of publicly ridiculed and mocked for the state of his avatars that he keeps putting out there to the public and how cartoonish and still sort of awkward they look. Shireen Ghaffari, tech reporter at Recode by Vox. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S., That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. 
If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. And then there's this kind of third way, this hybrid way of taking parts of an insect, like maybe an antenna, and then connecting it to a robotic machine and having that robotic machine read the information that that antenna can give. Joining us now is Pranchu Verma, tech reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Pranchu. Thanks for having me. Well, robotic engineers are always working on some fun stuff. Right now, they're looking for things that, you know, could aid in search and rescue projects, uh, pollinate plants, maybe sniff out gas leaks in different areas. And what they're uh, using as inspiration for this are insects, the way they move, the way they fly, all of that stuff. They're increasingly working that into their robotic designs. But not just that. I mean, they're building whole robots out of these designs. They're also kind of mixing and matching, creating hybrids or putting robotics on top of big Madagascar hissing cockroaches. It all gets pretty interesting pretty quickly. So, Pranchu, tell us what we're seeing with this right now. Yeah, it is definitely very interesting. So, robotic engineers have kind of been doing really well on larger robots. And there's a subset of engineers looking to advance the next generation, and they want to go tiny. And when they want to go tiny, they're looking at inspiration from things that are really tiny that do things in nature very well, like crawl and fly and where else to look but into the insect world for inspiration. So, yep, you're actually seeing a very robust level of research now happening on insect-inspired robots. And like you said, you know, they're taking multiple forms. There are some robotic researchers that are creating full-on mechanical robots based on bees or lightning bugs. There are some that are actually putting 3D printed stuff onto live insects, like you mentioned, the Madagascar hissing cockroach, and turning them into cyborgs, essentially, and having them be controlled by humans to do things. And then there's this kind of third way, this hybrid way of taking parts of an insect, like maybe an antenna, and then connecting it to a robotic machine and having that robotic machine read the information that that antenna can give. And so it's definitely one of the more interesting kind of fields of invention that we're seeing so right now. Let's talk a little bit about the cyborg cockroaches, because that's an interesting yeah. one on, on more ways than one, right? So first off, they said, okay, maybe we can outfit a cockroach with some sensors on its back, maybe a little camera, whatever. And that could be used in, in search and rescue projects. Maybe a building fell down. They can get into those nooks and crannies and search for people a lot easier. And that's great. But what they're doing is, right, they're outfitting it with some robotics, some sensors, all that stuff. And they said that they'll control them with little electrical shocks. So they, you know, move left or right, basically. That way you can kind of control their movements. So on that, I mean, that all sounds super cool and everything, but there are ethicists on the other side of things that say, well, that might not be so cool. Yep, exactly right. I think there's, uh, like you said, you know, there's definitely a use case for 
putting these 3D printed sensors onto the backs of Madagascar hissing cockroaches, because like you said, they're tiny and maybe they can get into things like earthquake rubble better than humans can. And if you put cameras on them or carbon dioxide sensors, whatever have you, they can allow us to, you know, help real people. But, you know, I talked to uh, a few animal ethicists as well. And I think one of the things that people also worry about is that we're not sure that cockroaches have thought or feeling when it comes to being controlled by humans. But the fact is, is this opens up the broader question of maybe they do. And maybe we need to learn a little bit more about actually turning real life insects into robots at our pleasure that move the way we want by shock and learn a little bit about what they feel and what they actually have when it comes to, you know, this research. Because when you look at live animals and, of course, humans, there's a whole robust sector of protections that we have. But with insects, there's really nothing, at least in the United States and in other many countries, that actually gives researchers pause to figure out what they should be doing and what questions they should be asking about the ethics of the work before they actually engage in it. And then, you know, to be clear on all this, you know, some of these advances that we're talking about, it's all in the research phase right now. They're still working on this stuff, but they've been propelled, right? Things have picked up the pace because of how good the technology is getting. These sensors are getting smaller uh, in large part because of smartphones and smartwatches, right? We're creating tinier things for those. So we're learning the new processes for creating smaller things. Fabrication's getting better. Batteries are getting better. But those very same things need to get much, much better to be able to really create some of these uh, little robots of the future. We're just getting to the stage where like life-size robots are doing what we need them to do. Now imagine making all of those sensors and all of those parts one one thousandth of the size and being able to do the same level of computing power or provide energy at the same level. That's like you said, you know, we have more smartwatches, we have more smartphones. So there's a whole host of industries that are forcing us to think smaller and make things smaller. But a smartwatch is still nothing compared to a robot fly. You know, we still have hundreds of, of, by factors of hundreds to go to get these types of sensors and batteries so small and microscopic and efficient enough that they can work to the levels that we need them. Well, yeah, some interesting stuff and uh, a couple cool details in the article that you wrote up on just how they're doing these things. As you mentioned, sometimes they're taking insect parts and connecting those things to robots, too to see if they can pick up, uh, uh, you know, from like antennae and things like that. Just really, really crazy stuff. So we'll keep an eye out and see how these uh, cyborg cockroaches and, and others uh, are progressing. Pranchu Verma, tech reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! 
Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.